Father, you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our praise. And as the people of God, we want to make much of you. We know that the purpose of our lives is to glorify you. So, Lord, I pray that your spirit, by your spirit, and through your grace, that you would do a work in our hearts as we open your word, your word that is inspired, your word that is empowered by the spirit of God to do work in our hearts and our lives. And we confess that we come here with things in our lives that aren't just right. We confess that there are fears that we have about living in the world that we live in and we confess that there are often priorities in our lives that we misplace. And thank you for the opportunity to come together with the people of God and be reminded of who Jesus is and how wonderful he is and how marvelous he is and for what he's done and who he is and what he's still doing now. So Lord, I pray that you would transform us more and more into the image of your son. As we open your word and we learn and we grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Why do you come to church? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you go to community group and Bible study? Why do you serve on Sunday morning and set up all these crazy things up here and chairs? Why do you serve in kids' ministry? Why do you tell your neighbor about Jesus? Why do we do these things? Well, I hope the answer is... I hope the answer is that we want to be, as I just prayed, a people who are ongoingly transformed, that we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we're transformed by the Spirit's work in our lives, by His grace, that we're not content with just coming to church and going to Bible study and learning new information, but we want to do something with that information that we learn. We want God to do something in our lives, and I hope not only transformation is part of it, but making a difference, that you want to make a difference in this world for the kingdom of God, that God might be glorified by it, that people might come to know Jesus, that your marriage might honor him in a new and fresh way, that your children might be taught in a new and fresh way, that your life might model the life of Christ to those around you. I hope that's why you're here. I hope that's why we do the things that we do. James says it in this way, that we shouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we need to be faithful, what is it, doers of the word. That's a tall order. That's a tall order in my life as every week I open the word and look at it and go, how does my life square up? Am I, is, does my belief match my behavior? And the answer is often no. But this is the beauty of God's word and his spirit and his grace in our lives that we are continuing to pursue that in our lives and that's the question I have for you this morning is that what you desire do you really desire to grow and be transformed and to change into the image of Christ what do you do with God's word is your aim to put God's word into practice in your life for the last seven weeks we've been in the book of John and we've been looking specifically at the I am statements of Jesus, who Jesus claims to be, who he says he is. And it's oftentimes after Jesus has said these statements that he turns and says, do you believe this? Remember when he turns to Martha and he says, do you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life? And this is the theme that we see in the book of John, this idea that 
We want to believe in Christ, the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that we might have life in his name. And he tells the disciples all these things, these amazing things about himself. But what does he want them to do with this information, these amazing truths about himself? That's the question I want to answer today, to really wrap this I Am series up. We've looked at some fascinating truths, these metaphors about who Jesus says he is, that he says he's the bread of life, he's sustenance, that he is the light of the world. That means that he brings truth into a dark place, that he is the door, that he is the good shepherd, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the vine, and he is the resurrection and the life. almost forgot that. So what does he want them to do with that information? Is it just to go, man, Jesus says a lot of cool things about himself, a lot of great things about himself, and he used the world around him to do it, that he's just a good teacher, and I I can't wait to go listen to him speak, or does he want them to do something with it? You see, Jesus' purpose was to reveal that he was the Messiah through his words and his works, and Particularly with the disciples, what were they meant to do with that? They were meant to believe it, they were meant to know him by it, and they were meant to go tell the world about Jesus. If Jesus really was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, that message has to get out. Who's it going to get out from? Jesus' intent all along was that these disciples share him with others. So how do the disciples do, at least initially? after Jesus has revealed all these things, when the heat is turned up and Jesus is about to be arrested, how do they do? That's the question I want to answer today. And also, the question, what is Jesus, how does Jesus respond to their incredible failure? Excuse me, I have allergies the last couple days and it's totally knocked me out. I'm about to (coughs) cough. I don't have COVID, I promise. I just have allergies and it's wrecked my my throat. Anybody got that this week? And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the disciples' response and then Jesus' response to them. But first, we need to be reminded of purpose. See, the first idea this morning is that Jesus has called his disciples to both believe and bear witness about him. The book of John is filled with this call to believe. In John chapter 1, you see it. You see, as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God. You see it in John 6, I'm the bread of life, believe and you will have eternal life. He calls all the way through the book of John and you come to chapter 17 and after the last I am statement in chapter 15, what Jesus starts doing is he starts ramping up his rhetoric about the fact that he's going to leave, that he's no longer going to be there. He's been trying to tell them that he's leaving, that he's going to a cross and he's going to be raised again and they don't quite get it, do they? But he's telling them that he's going to leave, but he's going to provide the Spirit, that the Spirit's going to be their counselor and their guide. And then he's also reminding them their purpose is to bear witness, to believe, to know him, and to bear witness, to go and be a sent people. And so in John chapter 17, it's one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. I'd love to do at some point a sermon series just in John 17. If you've ever wondered if God really loves you, Go to John 17, and you will see Jesus' love for his father, his father's love for him, and then Jesus' love for you. 
So if you're ever wondering, if you're ever in that place, in that hard place, and you're going, does Jesus really love me? Go to John 17. But in John 17, you see this, this idea that he's called his disciples to believe and bear witness of him as he's going to be passing the torch down the line to them when he is dead and raised and in heaven. And so in John 17, verse 18 through 21, here just a little snippet of what you see in John 17. As you sent me into the world, he's, he's praying to his father. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He's praying to his father. And he says, as you sent me into the world, Father, so I have sent them, that's the disciples, into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. So he cares about their witness. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe future in me through their word. So he's talking about the witness of the disciples as they go out and tell others about Jesus. And here's the knowing part, that he wants us to know him, that they may all be one, as just, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, Jesus calls his disciples to believe and bear witness, but here's the thing. Jesus calls us to believe. He calls us as disciples to believe and bear witness of him as well. We are sent out ones. That's the commission that Jesus has left us. The marching orders that the captain has given the soldiers, the commander has given the soldiers, is to make disciples, to go, therefore, and make disciples. We know this truth. But that truth is not just about knowing, right? We were, uh, I, I usually debrief with my kids um, and my wife when she was, she was on the trip as well. And so I want to know what happened at this mission trip. Tell me more uh, about the home that you worked on and the people. And tell me more about what you learned. Tell me more about what you took from the week. And one of the things that they said on the last night when they came together to talk about, hey, here are our takeaways. Here are the things that we're going to take away from this. Ron, who's a friend of mine who runs Blueprint Ministry, my wife, I, may, I hope I get this right, um, my wife um, was sharing with me one of the things that she shared with the group. And he gave an example. He said to the kids, kids, um, when your parents, when they go and they say to you, hey, go clean your room, and a couple of hours later they come to you and they say, have you cleaned your room? What if you as a kid said, I memorized what you said. I know what you said. Isn't that good enough? I know the information. I know what's been communicated. No, it's not. Because the call is from mom to kid is to clean your room, to do something. And the point that he was making from a week of serving is it's important. It's not the Christian faith is not just memorizing information. It's not just knowing the truth. It's not less than that. You have to know the truth to put it into practice, but it's doing it. It's not only believing, but it's doing. And this is what Jesus has called the disciples to do, to not just know, but to do something with the knowledge, to tell others about the Savior. Can I ask you a question this morning? Do you take serious the Great Commission call? In your life as a disciple of Jesus, if you know Jesus in this room right now, it is just as much your call and mine to tell people about Jesus as it was theirs. The reason you know about Jesus is because they told somebody. And somebody told somebody else, and that got to you. 
Let me ask you, let me, let me put it this way. If you felt the Lord had called you to be a missionary and to go to Tanzania, what would the steps for you to be a Christ follower be to go from here to there? You would get training. Maybe you would learn the language. And then once you got there, you would raise support. Once you got there, what would you do? If you're a missionary sent to Tanzania, what are you going to do? You're going to learn the culture. You're going to learn wherever you're at and the people who are near you. And then you're going to come up with a strategy to go, how do I witness to these people? How do I bear witness to them? How do I share the gospel with them? How do I befriend them? So you're thinking about ways in which you're sent out as a missionary. Can I tell you something? The Great Commission is as you are going. You know what that means? That means where you're at right now, is the, that's the same you need to live, let me say it this way, you need to live as though you are a sent out missionary right where you're at. You need to know who your neighbors are. You need to know what makes them tick. You need to know Montgomery County. You need to know Magnolia, where you live. Jesus has sent you out. You just happen to be right here to live as a sent out missionary. What does that look like in your life? Is that even on your radar? Is it on our radar as a church? to reach people with the gospel who are here? Do you live as a sent out missionary? Well, after hanging out with God incarnate for three years, these disciples have heard him speak about all these things, to know him, to follow him, to tell of him. They've heard the messianic claims, the I am statements. They've seen the miracles. But when push came to shove, how did they respond when it was time for Jesus to pass the baton to them. They failed, at least initially, they failed miserably, didn't they? They failed miserably. See, the reason they failed is because of fear. Fear and misplaced priorities derailed these disciples from living for Jesus. I want to show you this. I want to show you this in a couple of different texts. So I'm going to move around a little bit today. We usually are in one text but we're going to move around as we wrap this up. In Mark chapter 14, here's what you see. You see Judas, the Last Supper. You think about the Last Supper and Jesus says, one will betray me and Judas leaves. And the disciples don't even really catch it because he's the guy with the money, which means he's trustworthy. But he leaves and then they go to the Mount of Olives. And they sing, and Mark 14 says, they sing a hymn on the Mount of Olives and how's this for a transition from Jesus? Jesus goes from singing a hymn with his disciples to saying, you're all going to betray me in the matter of a few hours. Jesus didn't do transitions. Very, either, either that or we, we're missing here from John. It makes me feel better when transitions don't go so well. So they're on the Mount of Olives singing. Jesus says, you're all going to deny me. And of course, Peter, right? The bold, brash, shoot, fire, aim, Peter speaks up and he says, the, all these knuckleheads might deny you, but I won't. And what does Jesus say to Peter? No, the rooster will crow twice, and you will deny me three times before this night is up. No, I won't. And then the rest of the disciples say, no, I will not deny you, Jesus. And what do we know that happens next? They go from the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is praying, and they fall asleep, and the soldiers come, and Jesus says, it's my time. And Judas shows up with the priest and the scribes and the elders, torches, and he's arrested. 
And Mark 14, 50 says this, and they all fled and ran away. They were fearful. But you see, Peter, he didn't quite run away, right, yet. He followed them. He followed them to the high priest's place. And he was in the courtyard, and he trailed behind. And he comes to this courtyard, and there are soldiers there, and there's this little servant girl there. And the servant girl says, you're with him, little girl. You're with him. And what does Peter do? No, I wasn't. And so the servant girl does what a little girl would do. She goes and tattles to the bystanders and says, he was with him. He's a Galilean. He was there. Bystanders come. You were with him. No, I wasn't. Third time, he curses. He says, I was not there. You got the wrong guy. And for the second time, the rooster crows. And Peter weeps because he's denied his Savior. He's denied the one that's called him to make disciples, the one who said, follow me. The fear of man can derail us. Big bad Peter, derailed by a little servant girl. Fear from a little servant girl. Controlled by fear from a little servant girl. But that's not all. The next time you see the disciples all gathered together, okay, think about where that is. That's at his arrest. Jesus is taken and he's beaten. And then he's taken up the hill of Calvary, bears the cross. Disciples are nowhere in sight as far as we know. Dies on a cross. His mother is there and a few ladies are there. And it looks like maybe John is the only one who's at the crucifixion of Jesus. But the rest of the disciples are nowhere to be found because of their fear. Because if they're going to take Jesus, they're going to take us. And then they, Joseph takes the body down from the cross. You don't see him. And then Jesus is resurrected. And the first time you see the next disciple is Peter and John going to the tomb. And the first time you see them all together is after the resurrection in the room, Right? They're up in the room. Listen to this text and look at the fear of this. This is after the resurrection. This isn't just after Jesus is put on a cross and killed so they'd be scared. This is after they know that Jesus is risen from the dead. They're still up in the room. Look at this. Look at the fear. Chapter 20 of John, verses 19 and 20 and verse 26. I think we have it. On the evening of that day, this is after they've already gone to the tomb, and Jesus has appeared to Mary Magdalene. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Look at verse 26. And then eight days later... So he appeared to them, then eight days later, what are they still doing? This is after the resurrection. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, Peace be with you. You know, that text usually gets a lot of attention. It, it, it would for me when I'm just reading it. It's like, hey, the door's locked, but Jesus shows up. Like, he showed up where they're at two different times, 
And another text tells us he came through the doors. That's pretty cool. Resurrected body apparently can go through walls or doors. That's really cool. But do you notice the point that I'm making here? They locked the doors. Jesus had to get in that way because they locked the doors because they were afraid of the Jews. Not only after Jesus' death, but after his resurrection. What should they have been doing? They should have been going around saying, he is risen. He is risen indeed. But they were still scared. And maybe their thinking was this. I'm scared because they killed Jesus, so they're going to kill us. But now he rose from the dead, so that means his message is really true. Now they're really going to get us. Fear of man. And yet Jesus shows up. And he stands with them. And he says, peace to you, which in first century is just a gentle way to greet someone when they show up at your house. Jesus just showed up in the middle of the living room. You see, fear can derail our living for Jesus and what he's called us to do. But there's something else. So, so you see this passage, and then the next time you see them is chapter 21. Look at it with me. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. So we've seen fear, <coughs> a lot of fear. 21, 1 through 3. And after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. So Jesus is pursuing them in both of their places where they're fearful. Thomas the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So here's the thing. Why did they go to the sea? So Simon Peter said to them, they were in lockdown, and now he says to them, I'm going fishing. What is their occupation before they came to Jesus? Fishing. And Jesus said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going fishing. I've gone from lockdown from two weeks, from being fearful, I'm going to go fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but they caught nothing. You see, fear and misplaced priorities often derail us like they did the disciples for li from living for Jesus. When I think about fear, I think about when I was a teenager. And I cared so much about the approval of other teenagers or the approval of other people. And I would adjust what I did or what I said to get approval because I was scared of rejection and I wanted approval. You ever been there? As a teenager, that ruled my world. I made decisions based on approval and fear of rejection. And it's not so much different as adult. We just hide it a little better. <laughs> Often times. And I think these men were gripped with fear. You know what fear does? It controls us. So my question for you is who controls you? What controls you? We could talk generally about a culture of fear that we live in all the way across the map and what it causes in us or what it produces in us. But I want to specifically talk about it as it relates to living for Jesus. So the question is, maybe you've had a bad experience with trying to tell somebody about Jesus. Maybe you don't think it's your gifting. Maybe you don't think it's your personality. I've got a lot of reasons not to tell my neighbor about Jesus. Or my coworker. Well, I, I can't use coworker. Y'all can use coworker. Some of you can. 
Jesus in a tent. But have you put, been put on lockdown from telling other people about your risen Savior? Why? Probably because the fear of man. For some reason, in some way. And you know what else the fear of man produces? And I think this is what happened to the disciples when they went fishing. I think they're escaping. They're trying to escape their new calling. It's not bad to go fishing. But I think they're trying to escape. I think Peter's going, hey, I'm just going to go back to fishing. It's a whole lot easier. Fishing for men is a whole lot harder. There's a whole, whole lot more repercussions to that. I'm just going to go fish again. I've got my job over here. I'm going I'm to go do this. You see, fear and misplaced priorities often derail us from living from Jesus. You, have, you, you got any misplaced priorities? Got any escapes? What are you fishing for in life? What are you fishing for? Fishing for money, position, relationships. You're fishing for souls, the souls of men, which Jesus has called us to fish for. Are you on lockdown from sharing the good news and demonstrating that in your life? Man, there are times where God puts an opportunity in front of me. I'm like, man, neighbor's outside. He's right there. He's got a problem, knows I'm a pastor. I've got opportunity in that. He shares his heart about something or something's going on in his life, her life. There's opportunities all around us to do that. But here's the thing. They failed miserably. And if you were Jesus and you spent three and a half years with these dudes and they demonstrate in this moment fear and misplaced priorities, what do you do? You punt? I'll probably punt and go, man, I need to find some different guys before I bail. I'm going to find some different people. These guys are weak. These guys aren't going to take the message of the gospel forward. Is that what Jesus does? It's not what Jesus does. Look back at both of those texts. Jesus shows up. When they're in lockdown, Jesus shows up. He finds them. They don't go find him. He finds them. And look at what he says. Jesus said to them again, when they're in the room, in chapter 20, they're in this room where they're in lockdown. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. He's already told them to do that. He's already told them to bear witness. He's like, I'm still for you. This is still your job. And I'm still with you. Even though you just fell on your face. Isn't that great? I hope that's encouraging to you. Unless you got it all together. Unless you share the gospel with every person that you come into contact with and you never have misplaced priorities, that's encouraging. I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is the Great Commission call, John's version of the Great Commission call right here. And then let's go to the sea where they escape. And they go back to doing what they're doing. I'm going to go back to fishing. What does he do? He shows up. At the sea. They didn't call him and go, hey, Jesus, you want to come hang out with us? They were probably feeling guilty. But Jesus shows up in their failure, in their misplaced priorities. Jesus shows up. And he stood on the shore and he yells out, look at it. If you've got a Bible in front of you, I don't think we have this part up here. He comes to the shore and he looks out and maybe it's a distance away or maybe they just can't tell who he is. 
And he says, hey, kids, <laughs> caught any fish? No. Throw it on the other side. They ought to be thinking, I think that might be Jesus. And then they cut, catch, it says, 153 fish. They're like, we know it's Jesus. He's told us to do this before. He's not a fisherman, but he knows what he's talking about. And look at Peter. It's the Lord. And it says he threw himself into the sea. The last time Peter hangs out with Jesus, or the last time Peter, what's happened the last time Peter is around Jesus? He denies him. That's what I love about Peter, his boldness. But here's the deal. Peter knew Jesus well enough to know that he still loved him. Have ever around people where you let them down and you don't want to tell them? You don't want to have to deal with the guilt that they're going to lay on you? Jesus, Peter jumped. He jumped. He leapt out of the boat to find Jesus. This is the guy that's guilty. This is the guy who has denied him. But he leapt to see Jesus. And he runs over. And Jesus already has fish. And he also brings some bread. And I think there's kind of illustration there of I'm the bread of life. I, I can give more fish than you got in your boat. 5,000, 4,000, whatever you need. And then he pulls Peter to the side. Remember what Peter did? He denied him three times. He pulls Peter to the side. This is the grace of Jesus. Look at verse 15 in chapter 21. I think we have it here. And when he had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that you're my friend, phileo. He said to him, feed my lambs. Don't go fishing. <laughs> feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that you're my friend. Said it again. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Don't run off. Go tend my sheep. They need you. He said to him a third time, Simon of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said it to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus doesn't write off his disciples for their failure of fear and misplaced priorities any more than he writes you off with your fears and your misplaced priorities and your failures. He shows up. He's there in it. I hope that's encouraging to you as well. You got any fears? Got anybody in your life? You're like, man, I, they don't know Jesus. I really don't want to share with them. Maybe that's your dad. Maybe that's your mom. Maybe it's a family member. You got any misplaced priorities? Going fishing for the wrong things? Let me ask you, in what ways has God's grace in your failures in your fears, in, in your misplaced priorities, motivated a deeper desire to follow Jesus. So I don't know about you, but when I came to Jesus, before I knew Jesus, it was his grace that drew me to him. Because there was nothing that I could bring, and I finally realized there was nothing I could bring, that only to the cross that I had to cling it was his grace that brought me to the cross, and it was his grace that continues to do work in my life when I fail, when I fail, when I fail. When I fear, 
when I've got all my priorities mixed up. So Jesus calls us to live as sent out ones. We often fail. And yet he is still working. Amen. He's still working. He's still there in our fears, in our misplaced priorities, calling us back. So how do you respond to the truths of the Savior? Are you controlled by the opinions of people around you or the opinions of the world? Are you controlled by Jesus, your Savior? You know, Peter's an interesting study. He's a really interesting study. He's kind of the poster boy in the Bible for bold, brash, shoot, fire, aim, all of that. And we love that about him. But he's also, in a negative way, he's kind of the poster boy for, man, you were fearful. This little girl wound you all up and drove you to deny your Savior. And yet, Jesus is gracious to him, extends grace to him, comes back to him, feed my sheep, you love me. And the last thing Jesus says to him is, follow me again and again and again. And you know what you see later in Peter's life? Peter's already older here. But when you get to the book of 1 Peter, you've got to go read it sometime, Second Peter. You see an older, wiser man who is living, experiencing the forgiveness and the grace of God in his life. And this is what he says in 1 Peter chapter 3. And he's speaking to a people who are starting to be persecuted and starting to suffer for Jesus' sake, because they claim the name of Christ. And I think he's drawing on his own failure when he says this. He says this in 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15. Have no fear of them, of the servant girl, of the one who reviles you, the one who says something to you on social media. Have no fear of them. Don't be troubled. But in your hearts... Set apart Christ as Lord. See, when you set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, it's pretty hard to be controlled by fear or anybody else. But here you have the once bold, brash, but now humbled Peter. Humbled by the grace of God. Humbled by the forgiveness of Jesus And saying, honor Christ as Lord. Your takeaway, C3, this morning, as we wrap up this I Am series and how the disciples responded to Jesus is this. God's grace is the fuel for you to follow Jesus. His grace is how you believed in him, not works. So you believe in him by grace, not works. You walk with him by grace, not willpower. You're restored to him by grace, not penance. And you tell of him, not by your own devices and your own schemes, but by his grace. Let me pray. Father, we confess that we are often just like these disciples that we fear and we misplace our priorities. Lord, I pray maybe this afternoon that you would help us sit down and think about those things as we start a new year, a new school year at least, and how we honor Christ in our hearts. 
but we are grateful for your grace that both forgives us and restores us, and you call us to continue to follow you because we're your children. What grace that is, grace upon grace that you've shown us through Jesus. We love you. We pray for anyone here that doesn't know that grace yet, that hasn't experienced that grace, that maybe they're trying to live by their own works. Maybe they think that the things that they can do can earn favor with you. Lord, I pray that they would surrender that thought as these disciples had to surrender that thought. And that Christ would change them as they surrender to him. And Lord, I pray for people in this room who know Jesus. This is a tough calling to open our mouths and share the gospel with people. To live dependent upon Jesus. Lord, make us through your spirit. Humble us through your spirit. Make us a a dependent people. And as a church, I pray that we would be known for our humility and our dependence on Christ, the solid rock in which we stand. In Jesus' name, amen.